Let us begin again. Now, in the second session, we're going to get into very much more specific material and explanation of the Christian view of the sacred image. We spoke initially about beauty as the essential from God in which we participate in God, and we are used by God to be co-workers with God in the raising up of creation so that our artistic expression as Christians in particular, as those who have been anointed with the Holy Spirit, who have been regenerated in Christ and made the new creation, we take our share in God's renewal of the world. And that is the meaning of beauty for us as an objective standard of reality and not merely personal preference or personal interest or taste, but rather something that is transcendent, something that is numinous, something that is, in fact, divine. Now we're going to have a little Bible study about how Christians use sacred images and why Christian art matters. Why does it matter if we have art in our churches or not? Well, as we shall see, it's very important indeed. So let's do a little short Bible study with the biblical evidence for the Christian use of the sacred image. Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them, nor worship them. We read that in Exodus 20, and of course that would be the second commandment. But remember that this is the one commandment with one intention. It is the prohibition of making images in order to worship them. What does God prohibit in the second commandment? Making images for the purpose, specifically, of idolatry. This is forbidden by God. The making of images in and of themselves is absolutely not forbidden by God, as we will see throughout the entire Old Testament. In Leviticus 26 we read, Ye shall make no idols nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. For I am the Lord your God. Again, it's the same thing as the second commandment in Leviticus 26. The commandment here forbids the making of anything in order specifically to use it for idolatrous purposes. The meaning of the commandment is clear. Images are not to be served as idols in order to adore them. The word bowing down, thou shalt not bow down to them nor worship them, is a biblical euphemism. The Greek word is proskenusis, which literally means to adore, to worship, to offer divine adoration. So clearly, the problem that existed when God revealed the second commandment was that there were people actually making images in order that they might worship them. But as we shall see, that is not the Christian practice of art or icon. In Joshua 4 we read, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, Leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge. Joshua called twelve men, whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, 
And Joshua said, Pass over before the ark of the Lord, take you up every man a stone on your shoulder, according to the number of the tribes, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? that ye shall answer, The waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. We read in Joshua 24, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. He took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness for us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake to us. It shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So stones were erected and engraved by the commandment of God to be a memorial of his salvation for the people of Israel. The purpose of the memorial was to be a reminder not something to be worshipped or adored. In 1 Samuel 7:12, we have the mitzpah, the helping stone. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between mitzpah and Shen, and called it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Once again, God not only allows, but commands that a stone might be erected to the children of Israel to remind them of God's work of God's salvation. Well, how about this in 1 Kings 6? And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubim, so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. He overlaid the cherubims with gold, and he carved all the walls of the house with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and flowers. And the floors of the house were overlaid with gold. And for the entering of the oracle, he made doors of the olive tree. Lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. He carved upon them carvings of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubims and upon the palm trees. This is in the temple. This is in the temple. The temple has iconography. The temple of God has images in it. How about Exodus 25? Make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the cover, make one cherub at one end and another cherub at the other. Of one piece with the cover shall you make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread out above, shielding the cover with their wings. They shall confront each other, the faces of the cherubim being turned toward the other. Place the cover up on the top of the ark after depositing inside the ark of the covenant that I will give to you. There will I meet you. There will I impart to you from above the cover, from between the two cherubim that are at the top of the ark of the covenant. So God commands images to be created for the Ark of the Covenant. And that's not a violation of the second commandment at all. God requires the cherubim 
to be fashioned and put on top of the ark. The Lord does not forbid images altogether, but only worshiping images. Rather, God actually commands the creation of images to be used in liturgical and sacramental worship. And this was true in Israel, and it is true in the fulfillment and completion of Israel, which is the Holy Catholic Church. The images are not themselves to be worshipped, but they are required by God in the temple and in the sanctuary in the Old Testament. How about Numbers 21, the bronze serpent? And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived." This is one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. So the people are being bitten by fiery serpents. We don't know exactly what kind of serpents they were. But God's cue for this is to have Moses construct an image of a snake and to put it on a pole and raise it up. And when the people look on the brazen serpent, the serpent, the snake of brass, they look upon it and they're healed. Now that's a strange story. But God commands the creation of an image, the serpent of bronze. It heals the Israelites when they look upon it and trust in the Lord. The serpent is a strange icon, a sacramental form conveying a healing grace when people obey God's command to gaze upon it. Fascinating. Jesus says of himself, by the way, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus identifies himself as the fulfillment of the image of the brazen serpent. And we read that in St. John's Gospel. So that's the real meaning. It's a prophecy of the crucifixion. Also, that speaks to the significance, the iconography of the crucifix or the Christus Rex, the image of the crucified Lord, is the fulfillment of the bronze serpent. So why do Anglicans and other Orthodox Christians use pictures and statues of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Blessed Mother and of the saints? Disputes concerning the person of Christ did not cease with earlier ecumenical councils, but were extended into the 8th and 9th centuries. The later struggle centered on pictures which were kept and honored, both in churches and private homes. The iconoclasts, or icon smashers, that's what icon, iconoclast means, an icon breaker, an icon smasher, these people were suspicious of any religious art, which represented human beings or God, and demanded the destruction of the icons. The opposite party, the iconodules, those who use icons, 
vigorously defended the place of images in the life of the church. So this struggle between the iconoclast and the iconodule was not merely a conflict between two conceptions of Christian art. No, no. Much, much deeper issues were at stake. Much deeper issues were involved. The character of Christ's human nature, the Christian attitude towards matter, the true meaning of Christian redemption. The seventh and last ecumenical council held in 787 AD, Nicaea II, upheld Christian images. Images, the council proclaimed, are to be kept in churches and honored with the same relative kind of honor as shown to other material symbols, such as the cross and the book of the Gospels. The chief champions of the Christian image were St. John of Damascus, St. John of Damascus died in 749, and St. Theodore the Studite, who died in 826. Now, one of the distinctive features of Anglicanism, and traditional Anglicanism in particular, is the place that it assigns to images. An Anglican church today is often filled with holy images. The walls of the narthex and nave and sanctuary are filled with stained glass windows. Very often there are crucifixes, the Christus Rex, stations of the cross, are seen at the altar and around the building. Other images, pictures of statues, are placed in the chapel and around the church. Candles are often lit in front of a picture or a statue. What do these gestures and actions really mean? What do images signify? Why did St. John of Damascus and others regard them as important. We shall consider first the charge of idolatry, which iconoclasts brought against those who use Christian images. Then we will look at the positive value of images as a means of instruction, and finally, their doctrinal importance. The question of idolatry. When an Anglican possesses an image, he is not guilty of idolatry. The icon is not an idol. It is rather a symbol. The veneration shown to the image is directed not towards stone, wood, or paint, but towards the person who is depicted. Because icons are only symbols, Anglicans do not worship them, but only reverence or venerate them. St. John of Damascus carefully distinguished between the relative honor or veneration shown to material symbols and the worship which is due to God alone. The second commandment does not prohibit having images in church. It only prohibits worshiping them as images, as we have already seen, were commanded by God in the Old Testament, both for the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple attest to the fact that God commanded images in the Old Testament. Now, the form of honor that we use when we think of icons or Christian art, holy images, is called dulia. Dulia in Greek means honor, reverence, veneration, or respect. It is a respect that is given to a created thing. We give this honor, this respect, this reverence to the saints, 
to holy places and to holy things, to icons, to the relics of saints, and yes, to the Holy Cross, for which this church is beautifully named. Then there's another form of honor called hyperdulia. Hyperdulia is reserved for one person because she is extremely special. That form of special honor or higher honor is given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is the mother of God, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. God assumed human nature in the body of Mary and was made man of her womb. And therefore, hyperdulia is the highest honor given to a created being, and that is honor given to the Blessed Virgin. Finally, then, there is latria. Now, that's only for God. Latria is divine worship of the divine nature. It is adoration. Christians only worship God. We worship and praise the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This divine worship of God is called latria, or adoration. What about images as part of the church's teaching? Images are opened books which remind us of God. They're the one, they are one of the means which the church employs in order to teach the faith. He who lacks learning or leisure to study works of theology has only to enter a church building to see unfolded before him on the walls of the church the mysteries of the Christian religion. If an unbeliever asks you to show him your faith, said the iconodules, take him into your church and place him before the images. Christian images teach the Christian faith. Christian images are a picture Bible. They are the story of salvation in picture form, a Bible for all people, even for those who cannot read. And we must remember that for the vast majority of Christian history, for most of the time, Christians could not read. Most Christians were illiterate. And as you travel the world and think even of the Roman Empire or beyond and through the centuries, the vast majority of Christians had no erudition, and many of them were not able to read at all. So the icon, the image, was the way that they learned the story of the Bible. It is the Bible in an, a pictorial form, and as such, a Bible for all, that anyone can read, a Bible we can see and we can believe. The doctrinal significance of images. Here we come to the real heart of the iconoclast dispute. This is the heart of the matter. Granted that images are not idolatrous, granted that they are useful for instruction, and granted that they are not only permissible, but necessary, what do we say? Is it essential to have Christian art? Is it essential to have the Christian image? The orthodox answer to this is yes, it is necessary. The iconodules held that images safeguard a full and proper doctrine of the incarnation. Iconoclasts and iconodules both agreed that God cannot be represented in his human nature. For example, we read in St. John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. And that is true. No one has seen God in his eternal nature. 
In that respect, he is utterly unlike ourselves. He is totally other. But iconodules, those who support icons, continued by saying, the incarnation has made representational religious art possible because God can now be depicted because he is man and took flesh. God is a depictable God. God became flesh. God became man. God became matter. And for that reason, he can be portrayed in an image because he truly took flesh. Material images, argued St. John of Damascus, can be made of him who took a material body. He writes, Of old God, the incorporeal and uncircumscribed, was not depicted at all. But now that God has appeared in the flesh and lived among men, I make an image of the God who can be seen. I do not worship matter, but I worship the creator of matter who for my sake became material and deigned to dwell in matter, who through matter effected my salvation. I will not cease from worshiping that through this matter my salvation has been effected. The iconoclasts, repudiating all representations of God, failed to take full account of the Incarnation. And so they, like so many Puritans have done since, have a kind of dualism at work. They fell into a kind of dualism. They regarded matter as a defilement. They wanted a religion free of all contact with what is material. For they thought that what was spiritual must be non-material. This is Gnosticism. This is to betray the Incarnation by allowing no place to Christ's humanity, to his body. It is to forget that man's body as well as his soul must be saved and transfigured. The iconoclast controversy is thus closely linked to earlier disputes about Christ's person. It was not merely a controversy about religious art, but about the incarnation and the salvation of man. God assumed a material body, thereby proving that matter can not only be redeemed, but redeems. And the Word was made flesh and has deified the flesh, as said St. John of Damascus. God has deified matter in his incarnation, making it spirit-bearing, and if flesh becomes the vehicle of the spirit, then so all things physical become the instrument of God. The orthodox doctrine of images is bound up with the orthodox belief that the whole of God's creation, material as well as spiritual, is to be redeemed and glorified in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's just an introduction, and I want to get into more detail now and speak a little more closely about the Seventh Ecumenical Council and what it means. The Seventh Ecumenical Council is really important for Orthodox and Catholic Christians, but most of us have never really heard a lot about it. The Seventh Ecumenical Council was convoked by the Empress Irene at the urging of Patriarch Tiresias of Constantinople at the end of the iconoclastic controversy. Pope Hadrian I of Rome 
accepted the invitation and sent two representatives on the condition that a previous synod which condemned icons be condemned. The patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem could not attend because of Muslim persecution, so they each sent two monks to represent them. The council met on 17th August 17, uh, sorry, 786, I got ahead of myself, 17th August 786 for one day, a one-day council at the Church of the Apostles in Constantinople. It was broken up by angry soldiers who hated icons, and it did not resemble again, reassemble again until the 24th of September 787 at the Church of the Holy Wisdom in Nicaea, and there the Patriarch of Constantinople presided. The dogma of this council, which we as Orthodox Anglicans accept, affirms the doctrine of the honor of images, that they are honored with a relative honor or reverence, and that absolute adoration is reserved to God and to God alone. The honor given to a Christian image passes to its prototype. The formulation of honor versus adoration comes from the letter of the Bishop of Rome to the Empress. Now, iconoclasm, as we have said, is the destruction of images. It is associated with Leo III, who was an 8th century Eastern Roman Emperor. He published an edict declaring that all images and idols were to be destroyed, as he called it, because he believed there was excessive superstition that had grown up around the Christian image, Christian art. And he thought it was an impediment to evangelism, especially because he felt threatened by Judaism and Islam. There was a synod in 753 that rejected the icons, but these decrees were all rejected by the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And it says that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God the Son. The Son is the image of the unseen Father. Therefore, theologically, Orthodox images of Christ are not idols. This is so key in the Christian theology of the image or art. The image of the Father is the Son. The image of the Holy Spirit is also found in us. The Son is the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the image of the Son. And where is the image of the Holy Spirit? In us. For we are the icon of God. And the New Testament uses this term over and over again. Akon theu, the icon, the image of God. We were made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus Christ is the perfection and the fulfillment, the redemption, the healing, and the glorification of the image and likeness of God in man. And therefore, in Christ, we become the renewed image and likeness of God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the image of God, it makes sense for Christians to use images. This is why the council said, to deny the use of the Christian image is to deny either Christ's humanity, that he can be depicted, or his divinity, that he is to be worshipped 
or the proper relationship between his two natures, that he is to be worshipped in his humanity and imaged in icons. Nicaea, too, also equated icons with the display of the cross and held that representations of Christ, the Blessed Mother, the angels, and the saints are valid ways for believers to recollect the originals, to recollect the originals. When we encounter the Christian image, we are encountering what is represented in the image. And this is why the council would go on to issue a rather lengthy dogmatic decree, and I'll quote just a little bit from it. It says, We therefore, following the royal pathway and the divinely inspired authority of the Holy Fathers and the tradition of the Catholic Church, for as we all know, the Holy Spirit indwells her, define that just as the figure of the precious and life-giving cross, so also the venerable and holy images, as well in painting and mosaic, as of other fit materials, should be set forth in the holy churches of God, and on the sacred vessels, and on the vestments, and on the hangings, and in pictures, both in houses and by the wayside, the figure of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, of our spotless Lady, the Mother of God, of the honorable angels, of all the saints, and of all pious people, for by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes and to a longing after them. And to these should be given due salutation and honorable reverence. Not indeed that true worship of faith which pertains alone to the divine nature, but to these as to the figures of the precious and life-giving cross, and to the book of the Gospels, and to other holy objects, incense and lights may be offered according to ancient pious custom. For the honor which is paid to the image passes on to that which the image represents. He who reveres the image reveres in it the subject represented. Thus we follow Paul, who spake in Christ, and the whole divine apostolic company and the Holy Fathers, holding fast the traditions which we have received. So, the point of the Seventh Ecumenical Council for Orthodox Christians is that it's not only permissible, but it is necessary to have images of our Lord Jesus Christ and the saints, if we want to fully believe and fully express the Incarnation. We may have images in our own homes for personal devotion, because such a practice goes directly to the heart of Orthodox Christian theology and spirituality. It, it reinforces powerfully the reality and the effect of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. The God who became man dwells in us and in the church by his Holy Spirit, as in a temple. And it is certainly always and everywhere correct to consecrate our homes and dwelling places to our Lord Jesus by the use of sacred images and other sacramentals. The honor given to the Christian icon passes to its prototype, and the possession and the veneration of an image 
communicates the fact and the graces of the incarnation of the Word of God. The God who once was uh, invisible became forever permanently visible in the person of our Lord. The one who was invisible became permanently visible, and thus icons defend and teach, and what is more, confer in a mystical way the mystery of the eternal Son of God made man. Icons and statues are really not optional in the Orthodox Christian life or in Orthodox Christian worship. The Christian image is necessary, for without it, the incarnation cannot be realized in a personal and tangible nature. The miracles and actions of the Lord Jesus pass upon his ascension into the sacraments and the sacramentals of the church. Let me repeat that. That's from St. Leo the Great. He lived in the 5th century, and he said that the miracle and the action of Jesus pass upon his ascension into heaven, into the sacraments and the sacramentals of the church, so that the reality of our Lord is in his church, in his sacraments, and yes, in Christian art, in the Christian image. Some Anglicans have never really thought about this regarding the theology of the church on images. Many of us have no objection to stained glass windows or crosses or crucifixes, but we receive the faith of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, and it is incumbent upon us to apply it in the way that we believe, in the way that we practice our faith, in the way that we relate to the life of the church. The recovery of the actual practice mandated by Nicaea II only came about in Anglicanism with the Oxford movement and the Catholic revival. Although we do know that the Caroline divines, an old high churchman of the 17th and 18th centuries, employed lots of beautiful sacred art in their churches. Lancelot Andrews, who was a translator of the King James Bible and the Bishop of Winchester, used a crucifix and incense in his church, as did Archbishop William Laud of Canterbury, who was martyred in 1645 at the hands of the Puritans. Queen Elizabeth I had a great crucifix in her private chapel. Oxford University erected a large statue to Our Lady at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford before Cromwell's War and the Interregnum. There is a continuous tradition of sacred image and icon in Anglicanism, but there has been also a reaction of iconoclasm from the Puritan element as well. That Puritan rebellious streak mercifully has always been alien to the mainstream incarnational theology of Orthodox Anglicanism after the year 1559. The early Reformation period from 1547 to 1553 was very, very complex, and we might even say ugly. Remember, we spoke earlier about beauty versus ugliness. There was a lot of destruction in the years 1547 to 1553 of beautiful Christian art in the Church of England. And this was promulgated by men who were influenced by the continental religious revolt. We should consider it exceptional. It is anomalous. That is certainly not normative for Anglican doctrine and practice. 
Anglicanism moderated under Elizabeth I and slowly intensified its orthodox ethos under James I, Charles I, and Charles II, and with bumps in the road all the way up to the Tractarian movement. Today we have a more vigorous and lucid theological formation in preaching and teaching, and has brought about for us a deeper oneness of belief about Christian faith in general, but specifically about the importance of image. We affirm the ecumenical and dogmatic status of all seven ecumenical councils for the Anglican tradition, and the icon is very much a part of that. Christian art matters. Christian art is about the incarnation. The Seventh Ecumenical Council does not merely suggest or request that we should have sacred art or icons or holy images. It commands veneration as a necessary and fundamental aspect of Orthodox Christian worship. The deliberate refusal to construct, honor, and use sacred art, sacred images, is a denial of the incarnation of the Word, a rejection of the humanity of our Lord. As we have said, the honor given to sacred image passes to its prototype. And so icons are, in essence, sacramental. They convey what they represent, and they represent what they convey. More to the point, uh, to refuse to have an image would be an act of iconoclasm. Now, we have all sorts of different forms of physical acts of piety in the church, and there are many different ways of feeling and expression, but the image is always very much at the heart of what it means to be a traditional and orthodox Christian. We have always had them, and we continue to have them. And we've spoken of the distinction between latria dulia and hyperdulia. I'd like to speak for just a moment about how the depictability of Christ in the icon is so important. When this theology was more deeply understood and then promulgated for the church, it was very important to understand that if a Christian image were rejected of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that was saying something, and I know I'm re repeating here a bit, that is saying something about who Jesus is. If we refuse to make a picture of Jesus, then we are in effect saying that he did not have a true human nature as we do. Think, if you will, for a moment of a photograph. Now, the photograph that we take of a loved one demonstrates that that person is real, really existed and really stood before a camera and therefore was capable of being captured on film. That is what an icon does, too. The icon, in the form of sacred art or sacred image, captures the reality of the humanity of Jesus, so that if Jesus is not depictable in an icon, there's something about him that is less than human. This is what this debate was really about. It wasn't about taste, it wasn't about artistic preference or style. It was about the foundational truth that having an image of Jesus means that he is truly human and has a true human nature. Now, as to honor or veneration of icons, we can think of it in the same way as a photograph. 
How many of us have a photograph of someone that we love? I dare say every one of us. Raise your hand if you have a picture of somebody that you love at home. I think most of us would say that we do. If we have a photograph of someone we love, and in an act of emotion and love for that person, we kiss the picture, and we committed idolatry. Do I commit idolatry if I kiss a picture of my grandma? No, of course not. That's what we're talking about here. Icons are not worshipped. They're like spiritual photographs. We have them because we love the people who are depicted on them. And in so doing, we affirm the reality that God became man in Jesus Christ, and God the invisible, the undepictable, became the depictable God. And therefore, we affirm the reality of the Incarnation. When we use images in church, we're not worshiping those images. What we are doing is we're expressing our love for the people who are represented on them. Truly, we can summarize the whole theology of the Seventh Ecumenical Council and the icon tradition in this way. Not only is it natural instinct to have such images, God is telling us by divine revelation that this natural instinct of human art in which we cooperate with God and we co-work with God in the refashioning of the creation, this natural instinct is raised up to the supernatural level. It is raised up to the supernatural level, and the art that we possess is actually an access way to God. God relates to us through his creation, through the sacraments, God relates to us in a material and physical way through the image, through the icon. And so that is why Christians use them and always have, as we noted at the beginning of the presentation, from the very start. We should be careful to remember that St. John of Damascus, when referring to the veneration of matter, illustrates the orthodox practice of the honor of images. St. Damascene and the Second, Ecumen Second Council of Nicaea, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, go to great lengths to emphasize that the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist is not an image or an icon of the body and blood of Christ. That was actually a heresy taught around the same time period. The Eucharist is not an image of the true body and blood of Christ to be venerated or honored in like fashion as an icon. This is something the iconoclasts said. The only image of Jesus that we need is the bread and wine of the Eucharist. And they said, that's an icon, that's an image, that's a representation. Well, eh, nope, because the Eucharist is not a symbol. The Eucharist is not an image. The Eucharist is Jesus Christ himself. So this apologetic from the iconoclasts was repudiated by the Orthodox Christians. The Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, is the true body and true blood of the Savior, and to be adored with the divine worship of Latria. We adore Christ wherever he is present, and he is present in the fullness of his divine nature and in the fullness of his human nature in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is not an image, it is not a symbol, it is the reality. So we cannot refer to the Eucharist as a symbol or an icon of Christ. 
The church has always offered adoration to our Lord Jesus Christ under the form of bread and wine in the Blessed Sacrament. To say that we worship Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, but that we do not, in fact, worship the Blessed Sacrament is a distinction without a difference. The Lord Jesus is ontologically and objectively, always and abidingly present in the consecrated elements of the Eucharist. The Lord's presence in the Eucharistic elements is unique and adorable. Christ is adorable in the Eucharist. So we reject that clever attempt. It was very clever, quite a sleight of hand on the part of the iconoclasts. They thought they were being really, really smart and came up with this idea that the Eucharist is an icon or a symbol, but it isn't. No, it isn't. The position that the Eucharist is only an image or an icon is flatly condemned at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. The Eucharist is not only venerable, but adorable, worthy of adoration, because it is not an icon of the body and blood of Christ, but the very body and blood of Christ himself. It is the human nature of our deified Lord. It is the human nature of the one who is both God and man in one person, God the Son, Jesus Christ. St. John of Damascus writes about this issue, and I bring this up because we find that to be very conventional and very common in much of Protestantism. And the critique of Protestantism against the sacred image often employs this frankly, uh, heretical view from the 8th century, uh, taught by the iconoclasts. Now, the Eucharist is not a symbol. It's not an icon. It is Christ. This is what St. John of Damascus writes about that. The bread and the wine are not merely figures of the body and blood of Christ, God forbid, but they are the deified body of the Lord itself. For the Lord said, this is my body, not this is a figure of my body, and my blood, not a figure of my blood. And on a previous occasion, he said to the Jews, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And again, he that eats me shall live. But some persons call the bread and wine antitypes of the body and blood of the Lord. If some persons called the bread and wine antitypes, as did Basil the Great, they said so not after the consecration, but before the consecration. That is, they called it the uh, antitype or symbol of the body and blood before the consecration, before the offering itself. Okay, so that settles that matter. <laughs> if anyone should come up with that idea, that's, that's been solved too. And we have laid out here now some basic theology on what we believe about icons. Okay, with that, I thank you so much for your kind attention. Why don't we now take another break? Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs>